When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails podcast. My name is Zach Twomley and this is the 1916 miniseries special on the 1916 Rising The clue is in the name, but what is not in the name of When Diplomacy Fails is the fact that When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. What does that mean? Well, if you have been listening at all to these uh, (laughs) dialogues, I suppose you could call them that, it basically means that When Diplomacy Fails is a member of a network that contains loads of other podcasts, like When Diplomacy Fails, and I don't mean that I talk about history and they talk about history, I mean, there are history podcasts within them, but there's also other podcasts about topics that you might not know as much about. For example, every month, every member of the Agora Podcast Network is supposed to promote the Podcaster of the Month to you guys, with the hopeful result that you guys will all go and check this guy out, or girl. This month, we are promoting Chris Stewart and the History of China, and I know I just said that our... And I know I just said that all podcasts on the Agora Podcast Network aren't all history ones, but let's make an exception for Chris Stewart, because if you ever wanted to know anything about a history of China, and you didn't exactly know where to look, this should be your first stop. Chris's work is excellent, his quality is commendable, and his dedication to research and pronouncing all those tricky Chinese names is quite admirable. He's a pretty good guy and a very good podcaster, so I recommend checking him out for all your China history needs. Having said that, we're going to get started now and do episode 15. It's a little bit tragic and there'll be some sad music, but I feel like you guys will enjoy it. It's a good send-off for the vast majority of characters we've been following for a very long time, so let me know what you thought. Thanks and enjoy. We have reached the end of the line for the rebels. In this episode, their last breaths will be breathed, and Ireland's populace would be outraged by the revolution taking place in front of the firing squad, which lacked any sense of transparency and reeked of injustice, secrecy and militarism. Irish MPs would plead wisdom under such circumstances to the British government, but by the end of this episode we will see that the men who were executed men we are both familiar and unfamiliar with, provided the spark for the tinder, which seemed destined to set Ireland ablaze. If you feel you're ready for this emotional, and in some senses, rousing episode, then I would say welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents... 1916 A special centenary miniseries exploring the context, characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history The 1916 Rising Men of this mountain, my son, Macdara is the singer that has quickened the dead years and all the quiet dust. 
Let the horsemen that sleep rise up and follow him into the war. Weave your winding sheets, women, for there will be many a noble corpse to be waked before the new moon. Patrick Pierce, writing his last poem before his execution, to his mother, the 2nd of May, 1916. The public houses have been shut since Friday until today at 2pm. Result, in one district, near the Keys, the soldiers in common with the populace got blind drunk and ran amok. The scene was terrible. Many of the military lurched through the cloud, brandishing bayonets. Officers were almost equally uncontrolled, and the human vermin round about were falling over each other, fighting, bleeding, mad. Of course, the soldiers feel themselves to be top dogs now, and with drink taken, as they say here, are ready to play their part well, without too much encouragement. Words of English clergyman Bertram Carter, visiting Dublin on the 7th of May, 1916. In this rebellion, for the first time in the history of Ireland, at least nine out of every ten of the population were on the side of the government. Is that nothing? It is the first rebellion that ever took place in Ireland when you had a majority on your side. It is the fruit of our life's work. We have risked our lives a hundred times to bring about this result. We are held up to odium as traitors by those men who made this rebellion. And our lives have been in danger a hundred times during the last thirty years because we have endeavoured to reconcile the two things. And now you are washing out our whole life's work in a sea of blood. Irish MP for Mayo, John Dillon, speaking in the House of Commons debate of Thursday, the 11th of May, 1916. Patrick Pierce's final night was an emotional one, and later chroniclers surrounded the man's behaviour in a kind of cloud of piety, patriotism and bravery. Pierce knew he was going to die the next day, but to him this meant that the end goal was in sight. It was not an end to be feared, instead it was the fulfilment of all he had worked towards since his radicalisation. Nerves would of course had run rampant, and he would have felt undoubtedly tragic about leaving his mother behind. Not to mention the fact that his brother William would also be sentenced to death, purely because he was Patrick Pierce's brother. Pierce was conscious of the powerful symbolism of his sacrifice at Easter. He would compare himself to Christ in a final poem, as well as write a final letter to his mother. My dearest mother, he wrote, I have been hoping up to now that it would be possible to see you again, but it does not seem that it will. I have no words to tell you my love of you, and how my heart yearns for you all. I will call to you in my last moment. Subsequent imagery of Pierce was made into great spiritual and political capital by the Catholic Church, thanks in part to the account given by the Capuchin friars who gave the rebel leaders their last rites. Fergal McGarry described how one Capuchin friar, a father Aloysius, administered confession and heard Pierce's final thoughts the night before his surrender, noting that Aloysius described a beatific vision of Pierce on his knees in a cell, clasping a crucifix as a light shone from the spy hole onto his face, one of several potent images that were soon reproduced on commemorative postcards and pictures. All accounts of the actual executions themselves are from at least second-hand sources, normally from people that knew the Capuchin friars who accompanied the rebel leaders to their deaths, and stood beside them literally minutes before they stood aside and the shooting began. Suddenly the man they had been administering to was dead, just like that. It would thus be somewhat fake of me to give you accounts of each man walking to his death, but we do know some information about what happened. The 14 rebels who were shot in Kilmainham Jail were shot in the Stonebreaker's Yard. 
They were often blindfolded, had a paper target pinned to their chest, and they were sometimes sat down on a wooden box, since in the case of some men their nerves caused them to understandably shake violently. We cannot know what was in the mind of Pierce as he took the short walk to his final act. He must have believed to the end in his cause that his death would invigorate Irish independence movements and inspire future examples of sacrifice. Pierce's political and religious convictions were intertwined, that much is certain, and he would have been able at least to take solace from the fact that the sheer weight of materials he had left behind would tell people all they needed to know about him. Pierce was not alone in believing that he was soon to be entered into the pantheon of patriotic Irish martyrs, with all that entailed. He uttered no protest during the entire ordeal, understanding the fact that the Irish Revolution, which he and his colleagues envisioned, required the British action of making he and his comrades into martyrs. Pierce was not the only rebel leader executed on the 3rd of May, though. Following Pierce to the firing line were Thomas Clark and Thomas Macdonough, two men perhaps more responsible for the rising than any others. Clark was a veteran Fenian, the man who had so wished to rise during the Boer War, but who now finally had his chance. His was the voice of experience and incredible tenacity. McDonough had been a constitutional nationalist, like Pierce at one stage, but over time had been radicalised by association. He commanded the entire Dublin Battalion of the Volunteers by the time of the Rising, and had commanded forces at Jacob's Biscuit Factory when the Rising broke out. A former teacher in St. Enda's, where he was in regular contact with Pierce up to 1916, and a keen member of the Gaelic League, McDonough was responsible for planning the funeral of Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa, where Pierce made his oratorical debut in August 1915. McDonough had only joined the IRB's military council in April 1916. Some historians suspect this is because he was not trusted by Tom Clark until then, and only his links to other prominent Fenians by that point endeared him to Clark. McDonough would go on to be a signatory of the proclamation, and though his is a character we haven't acquainted ourselves with as well as other Fenians, he was still a remarkably important figure for the period. Reputedly warm, personable and sincere, McDonough is yet another example of a figure cut down in Ireland's early history where he could have played a truly significant role in peacetime. Joseph Plunkett's sister would recall of him. As soon as Tomás came into our house, everyone was a friend of him. He had a pleasant, intelligent face and was always smiling, and you had the impression that he was always thinking about what you were saying. With the dawning of the 3rd of May, all three men, one of them the de facto leader, another its mouthpiece, the other a passionate newcomer, were set to meet their end. This mini-series has followed their journey from radical thinkers and teachers to scheming plotters, and now their journey reaches its conclusion, in the place they all imagined it would realistically end, in front of a firing squad. As the shots rang out, and each man was executed in turn, General Sir John Maxwell believed he was doing the right thing. Here were traitors, the ringleaders of a foolish revolt designed purely to endanger Britain's war effort, sow division in Ireland, and cost innocent lives. Such criminals had to be dealt with in accordance of the law. The First World War had taught Maxwell that the harshest punishment often provided the best results. Would-be looters in the army would not act, as such, if they saw the perpetrators of such crimes executed. Would-be deserters would not desert, if they saw deserters shot after court-martialing. Would-be rebels would not rebel, Maxwell believed, in Ireland or anywhere else if they saw that Britain was more than willing to stamp out the rebellion with as much violence as it had erupted with. Indeed, Maxwell could count few objectors to this policy after the 3rd of May 1916, when the perceived ringleaders were executed. Augustine Burrell, the British official serving as Chief Secretary of Ireland since 1906, was perceptive enough to write to the Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, on the 30th of April 1916 and say, It is not an Irish rebellion. 
It would be a pity if, ex post facto, it became one, and was added to the long and melancholy list of Irish rebellions. Burl here was arguing for caution, and for whatever punishment decided upon to be meted out with consideration for the atmosphere in Ireland, and the potential to create a rebellion from the ashes of revolt. But in that same letter to Asquith, Burl also argued that The leaders, both fighting leaders and stump orators, are criminals, to whom short shrift should be given. In such a way, Burl gave clearly contradictory advice, but he also captured the difficulties facing Britain at the same time. These Irish rebels were unquestionably criminals and treasonous traitors at that, but how could they best be dealt with without fulfilling their end goals of martyrdom? This comes back to the propaganda trap I alluded to before, where the rhetoric and professed aims of men like Pierce, Clark, McDermott and Joseph Plunkett all pointed towards a belief in the need for self-sacrifice to fully achieve their ends. These men set everything up in the belief that the British would play their part and make martyrs out of them. For this to happen, the British would be required to blunder almost recklessly into the scenario, to offend public and private opinion through their actions. As Burrell's contradictory statements attest to, the British establishment was unfortunately not thinking about the impact on Irish opinion or the creation of martyrs. If they were, they were not perceptive enough to let sensible policy override their own sense of being stabbed in the back by the ever-traitorous Irish. Living through 18 months of total war aggravated this sense of betrayal, to the extent that Maxwell's policy, at least initially, was not condemned outright. Noting on the prevailing mood of the media at the time, Claire Wills, in her book GPO Dublin, noted, Initial responses to the rising published in both the national and provincial newspapers on Saturday the 29th of April were informed in almost equal parts by rumour and prejudice. It was condemned as insane and criminal by the conservative press. It had been masterminded in Dublin by socialists, influenced by trade unionists James Larkin and James Connolly. It was a stab in the back for home rule. On the 3rd of May in the House of Commons, the resignation of Augustine Burrell as Ireland's chief secretary was the order of business, and amidst much backbiting and amusing accusations, Mr. Burrell stood up to account for himself. He noted the help given by John Redmond, he noted the limits of the revolt in Ireland, he reflected on whether it would have been wise to have simply disarmed the Sinn Féin movement before it reached this point, and in his closing statement he made the following claims. This is no Irish rebellion. I hope that, although put down, as it is being put down, as it must be put down, it will be so put down, with such success and with such courage, and yet at the same time humanity, displayed towards the dupes, the rank and file, led astray by their leaders, that this insurrection in Ireland will never, even in the minds and memories of that people, be associated with their past rebellions, or become an historical landmark in their history. I hope that, at all events, will not be the case, and when yesterday morning I drove down from the Phoenix Park through all the familiar streets in Dublin on my way for the last time, leaving the shores of Ireland and crossing the Channel, when I viewed the smoking ruins of a great portion of Sackville Street, when I was surrounded by my own ruins and my own mind and thought, and all the hopes and inspirations and work I have done during the past nine years, one ray of comfort was graciously permitted to reach my heart, and that was that this was no Irish rebellion, that Irish soldiers are still earning for themselves glory in all the fields of war, that evidence is already forthcoming, that over these ashes, hands may be shaken and much may be done, that new bonds of union may be forged, and that there may be found new sources of strength and of prosperity for that country. I at all events have done what I could for her, and although I end my connection with her, lasting so long, in this melancholy manner today, I can assure the house, and I appreciate it, as well as any of my bitterest foes, if I have any in this house, that I still hope some measure of good may come out of this great evil. 
Note the allusions at the beginning of this extract for the need to put the rebellion down, as well as the repeated insistences that the revolt does not extend across the whole of Ireland. By this point, Pierce, Clark and McDonough had all been executed, and the mass arrests of many individuals had already occurred. After sticking up for his good friend and confidant of the past few years, Mr Burrell, MP John Redmond then turned his attention to the Irish situation and the proposed government response. John Redmond said, The outbreak happily seems to be over. It has been dealt with with firmness, which was not only right, but it was the duty of the government to so deal with it. As the rebellion, or the outbreak, call it what you like, has been put down with firmness, I do beg the government, and I speak from the very bottom of my heart, and with all of my earnestness, not to show undue hardship or severity to the great masses of those who are implicated, on whose shoulders there lies a guilt far different from that which lies upon the instigators and the promoters of the outbreak. Let them, in the name of God, not add this to the miserable, wretched memories of the Irish people, to be stored up perhaps for generations, but let them deal with it in such a spirit of leniency, and in that way pave the way to the possibility which the right honourable gentleman, Mr Burrell, hinted at, that out of the ashes of this miserable tragedy there may spring something which will re-round to the future happiness of Ireland, and the future complete and absolute unity of this empire. I beg of the government, having put down this outbreak with firmness, to take only such action as will leave the least rankling bitterness in the minds of the Irish people, both in Ireland and elsewhere, throughout the world. Here was the foresight displayed by Ireland's foremost politician that seemed so lacking among his British contemporaries. Already John Redmond understood that to act with severity would mean provoking a populace who had just experienced an emotional, traumatic and symbolic event which remained raw in their minds. To murder any more of those responsible for it or to continue to hold in prison those that were believed to be guilty by association, would be to orchestrate a turning of the tide of opinion against British governance. By proxy, if Britain were to create such a changing of opinion, Redmond believed that the hostility would extend to his party as well, who these Sinn Féiners would view as collaborators. Redmond wasn't alone in this view. In a remarkable display of unity despite their past, Sir Edward Carson of the Unionists made his opinion felt on the rising as well. Opening with an admission that he and Burrell had never seen eye to eye, Carson commented that despite this, nobody could dispute that Burrell had done his best in his posting as Chief Secretary. Carson noted, With reference to the speech of the Honourable Member for Waterford, and what he has said about these unfortunate dupes in Ireland, let me say... While I think that it is in the best interests of that country that this conspiracy of the Sinn Féiners, which has nothing to do with either of the political parties in Ireland, ought to be put down with courage and determination, and with an example which would prevent a revival, yet it would be a mistake to suppose that any true Irishman calls for vengeance. It will be a matter requiring the greatest wisdom and the greatest coolness, may I say, in dealing with these men, and all that I say to the executive is... Whatever is done, let it not be done in a moment of temporary excitement, but with due deliberation in regard both to the past and to the future. I want to point out three things having followed these debates in the House of Commons. The first is that both Redmond and Carson understood the importance of acting calmly under the circumstances, and that both appreciated the necessity of not creating a rebellion out of this revolt, by implementing an unduly harsh policy. But on the other hand, neither appeared to have particularly concrete recommendations for Dublin Castle or London to follow. No mention is explicitly made to the danger of making martyrs. Instead, we are merely warned of the danger in acting in a moment of temporary excitement. Even the cautions against a harsh policy are accompanied by expressions that suggest the need to use a certain level of firmness, as Redmond put it. Redmond confessed that it was the government's right to act with such a firmness, while Carson argued for the need to put the revolt down, with an example that would prevent a revival. 
If we try to read between the lines of what both men said here, we can judge that they may have meant either that no more executions should follow those of the first three men, which they by by this point knew about, and that prison sentences should now be the sentence, or that only the true ringleaders or signees of the proclamation should be executed. Certainly both men did demonstrate an awareness of the situation, which was far more in tune with the actual reality on the ground in Ireland than either of their colleagues. But could they have gone further and issued more definite instructions on what not to do? Or are we placing too much responsibility on their shoulders as Irish MP? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Peace. And not taking the British, who were supposed to be ruling Ireland responsibly, into account. My second point is the amount of references to Sinn Feiners, even from men like Redmond and Carson who were from Ireland and were meant to be aware of native movements on the ground. Carson is perhaps excused because of unionism and disavowal of Irish language and Irish cultural organisations, which mostly associated themselves with nationalists. But how could John Redmond equate all that had occurred to the movement of Sinn Féin? Did he really believe that Arthur Griffith's Sinn Féin was behind the rising? Or was he merely going along with the assumptions of his colleagues having not yet done his homework? In earlier episodes, I alluded to the fact that Sinn Féin became this all-purpose Republican vehicle thanks to its association with the rising in the months after the event. With extracts like this, we can see why. Not only are Westminster politicians regularly referring to a Sinn Féin movement, with Augustine Burrell expressing a wish to have them disarmed sooner, but Irish MPs like Redmond also use the same terminology. If Redmond wasn't willing to correct his colleagues and inform them that actually Irish activism was made up of way too many groups to get into and that Sinn Féin was in fact a very small fish among them, then that suggests he either didn't know that this was the case or didn't feel that it was important to make the distinction. Either way, though, does this not show a dramatic ignorance on the part of Redmond? Because by failing to correct his colleagues, Redmond participated in perpetuating the myth revolving around Sinn Féin at this time. It was a myth that also puzzled Arthur Griffith, the leader of Sinn Féin, who didn't quite understand why his grouping was suddenly getting all this attention but in time such developments were to have significant consequences for Ireland's political future as a whole. The third and final point is more of a technicality, but still very important. We know well that John Maxwell by this stage had appointed himself judge, jury and executioner in the case of the rebels, and that after the executions of Pierce, Clark and McDonough, 11 more men would be shot to reach a total of 14. 
To Maxwell, this was a necessary process and an important part of the British reaction to what had occurred in Ireland. Maxwell displayed none of the foresight urged by Redmond and Carson, but on the other hand, he was not from Ireland. He was not fully aware of its complexities and past, and as a career soldier, he was there to do his job, and that job was to restore order. We have debated General Sir John Maxwell already, but what is interesting in the case of the Rising was Maxwell's virtual detachment from London by this point, and his tendency to go it alone where decision-making was concerned. What this means for us in a practical sense is that while Carson, Redmond and even Augustine Burrell lamented what had been done and warned of what would come in the future, they were addressing their concerns to the wrong place. They should have been in Dublin Castle, speaking in person to General Maxwell and urging him to cease what he was doing before it was too late. That they did not can be put down to a lack of knowledge on how the situation in Ireland was governed at that time, and it also demonstrates how chaotic the situation was by that stage as well. As military governor with plenary powers to act in the name of the British government in a state of martial law, General Maxwell was supposed to serve as London's right hand. The problem was, as the old cliché goes, through either a sense of personal ambition or misconstrued duty, Maxwell's actions had shown that the left hand had absolutely no idea what the right hand was doing. This is proved by the fact that the following day, in spite of the warnings issued by Carson and Redmond, four more men would be executed. The 4th of May 1916 was the last day on earth for Joseph Plunkett and William Pierce. The former was ill with tuberculosis at the time. The latter was killed purely because he was Patrick Pierce's brother. The night before his execution, Joseph Plunkett was married to Grace Gifford, the sister of Muriel, who was also the wife of Thomas Macdonough, and now a widow since the day before. Such connections demonstrate that rebels liked to keep things among the family, but the very fact that Plunkett chose to marry before his death shows a number of qualities. Plunkett, like Pierce, was a poet and romantic at heart, a firm believer in the power of sacrifice. Plunkett asserted from an early stage the need for his generation to awaken Ireland and continue the traditions of Fenians before them. In the years after the Rising, the widowed Grace Gifford would be upheld as a kind of pure and brave, Mary-like female figure, who engaged in a final act of tenderness and intimacy with her loved one before his untimely death. It was Grace Gifford herself who, perhaps feeling a bit awkward about the whole way the thing was blown out of proportion, described the incident with less of a romantic twinge in the years afterwards. She said, I was brought in and was put in front of the altar, and he was brought down the steps, and the cuffs were taken off him and the chaplain went on with the ceremony, and the cuffs were back on him again. I was not alone with him, not for a minute. I was just a few minutes there to get married and then a few minutes to say goodbye that night, and a man stood there with his watch on his hand and said, Ten minutes. To the other less well-remembered rebels, Edward Daly and Michael O'Hanrahan, the 4th of May was also their last day on earth. Daly was the youngest rebel executed. At 25 years old, he had commanded forces around the Forecourts area of Dublin, a rank he had achieved because he had impressed his superiors with his administration skills in the years before. Most notably, when he orchestrated a load of trucks to be spread out, so that the movement of rifles in the 1914 Hoth gunrunning would ensure its success. O'Hanrahan was supposed to have been the second in command at Jacob's Biscuit Factory, and was a close friend of Thomas Macdonough, who himself had been executed the day before. O'Hanrahan had first dabbled in revolutionary politics when he joined Sinn Féin upon its founding, and went on to join literally every grouping under the sun after that. He had been quite high up in the Volunteers too, reaching the rank of Quartermaster General while also a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. By the end of the day of the 4th of May, 1916, seven rebels lay dead, and an uneasy pal hung in the air over Kilmainham Jail. Despite the warnings and ill omens, 
not to mention the potential for propaganda which had already been created. They killed Pierce's brother for no reason, they shot basically a boy, for example. Maxwell's reign was only half over. On the 5th of May, 1916, John McBride, a rebel soldier and a flamboyant, committed Fenian in the past, was executed. He had been Thomas McDonough's second-in-command, after he had joined their group while they marched past him in the city centre. McBride had actually been on his way to his brother's wedding at the time, and he was meant to be the best man, but reportedly he asked a friend to hold the ring and pay for his suit. He wasn't about to miss what the rebels had planned, even if... He had no idea what it was. His lack of knowledge wasn't sourced from his lack of enthusiasm, though. It was because he was too well known to the British that John McBride was held outside of the IRB's military council, since the latter feared he would draw unwelcome attention and expose their secrets by association. McBride had married and separated from Maud Gaughan, the former muse and proposal receiver of William Butler Yeats. During the Boer Wars, McBride had commanded a Boer Irish Brigade, and had been named a citizen of the Transvaal Republic as well, a status which drew the ire of Britain, who declared him an outlaw and traitor. McBride almost certainly would have participated in the Rising had he been made aware of it sooner, so his execution was more like bad luck that he had been caught than a absolutely random occurrence. Supposedly, He strolled to the execution yard, whistling. The 8th of May saw the executions of Eamon Kant, a figure we've been familiarised with for his similarly romantic views to Pierce and Plunkett, as well as three other figures, Michael Mallon, Con Colbert and Sean Houston. Mallon was a former British soldier and had commanded the force of the Irish Citizens Army at Stevens Green. As a committed socialist, he had founded the Irish Socialist Party alongside the late Francis Sheehy Skeffington, a good friend and political ally. Cornelius, Con Colbert, had fought at the South Dublin Union complex alongside Eamon Kant and had served as Tom Clark's bodyguard before that. Assuming the command of his unit because his superior was a married man, Con's decision likely cost him his life. Of all the rebels to die, Khan is the one we know perhaps the least about, because unlike the others he wrote very little once in prison, and had no visitors, claiming to his sister that a visit would grieve us too much. Sean Houston was the commander of the Mendicity Institution, a position which James Connolly argued needed to be defended for four hours to give those at the General Post Office Time to prepare a proper defence. Sean Houston held for two days, surrendering only when his position became untenable. Today, Ireland's train network, centred on Dublin terminus, begins at Houston Station, the rail hub which connects the railway lines all across the country. Incidentally, Houston Station is only a stone's throw from the position where the then 25-year-old Sean Houston made his name. After the 8th of May executions, a lull seemed to emerge in the willingness of the British administration to continue with the policy. This may have been because pressure was beginning to mount on General Maxwell to ease the executions, but it could just as easily be chalked down to disorganisation, in a regime that was essentially flying by the seat of its pants. The gap at least enabled public figures to weigh in on the debate, now that more information, or at least rumours, were becoming available. Many could not quite believe that the rebels had been executed for their role in the event, while another, more conspiratorial consensus emerged which insisted Britain had already executed far more than they actually stated. On the 8th of May, when British Prime Minister Herbert Asquith was asked directly by John Redmond whether he was aware that The continuance of military executions in Ireland has caused rapidly increasing bitterness of exasperation among large sections of the population, who have not the slightest sympathy with the insurrection. Asquith replied that, I have to say that General Sir John Maxwell has been in direct and personal communication with the cabinet on the subject, 
We have great confidence in the exercise of his discretion in particular cases and his general instructions, which conform to his own judgment in the matter, are to sanction the infliction of the extreme penalty as sparingly as possible, and only in cases of responsible persons who were guilty in the first degree. No one is more anxious than the government and Sir John Maxwell himself that these cases should be confined within the narrowest limits and cease at the earliest possible moment. That same session, MP for West Meath, Lawrence Ginnell, also asked the Prime Minister, How many military prisoners were summarily executed in Dublin last week for participation in the rebellion there? What was the alleged offence of these men, who were neither leaders nor signatories of the Republican proclamation? What was the length of interval between capture, sentence and execution? What facilities were afforded them for religious preparation for death? Were any allowed the ministrations of priests of their own choice? And are any more to be executed before this house is afforded an opportunity of discussing the matter? When the Prime Minister quipped that he needed more time to consider the question... Ginnell asked again whether any more rebels were due to be executed before a chance for discussion had taken place in Westminster, only to be greeted with the response that asked with, Couldn't agree to any such undertaking. This in turn was greeted by calls of, Murder! by Lawrence Ginnell, who had to be calmed down. Asquith was then asked whether the cabinet or the military authorities had authorised the executions. They were decided by the military authorities. Asquith plainly replied. It got worse for Asquith over the following days, as the murder of Francis Sheehy Skeffington was brought up for the first time, and greater scrutiny seemed to be placed upon General Maxwell. Arguably this came to a head on Wednesday the 10th of May, when Maxwell's powers were directly addressed. Lawrence Ginnell requested copies of the orders given by Maxwell in Ireland, and for a list of those killed during its course. John Dillon, significant member of the Irish Parliamentary Party and keen ally of John Redmond, echoed the latter's concerns of a few days before when he asked the Prime Minister for an undertaking that no more military executions by secret military tribunals will take place in Ireland. The beleaguered Asquith then responded by saying, As I stated yesterday, I cannot give the undertaking asked for by the Honourable Gentleman. The trials by court-martial of those who took an active part in the Rising in Dublin are practically finished, and we have the best reasons for hoping and believing that there may be no further necessity to proceed with the extreme penalty. Dylan repeated an earlier question, wherein he asked if any more executions had taken place since last Monday, the 8th of May, two days before the current proceedings. This lack of knowledge on Dylan's part and his quest for answers demonstrated the lack of transparency in Maxwell's system. When Asquith was asked how many individuals had been arrested and shipped to England to await trial, when they would be tried and through which judicial process, Asquith couldn't answer the questions, claiming he'd have to make an inquiry. The following day on Thursday the 11th of May, John Dillon launched a lengthy speech, which is now famous, that ripped into virtually every aspect of the government response to goings-on in Ireland. A heavy theme of Dylan's speech was the lack of information the government was getting from Maxwell. The Prime Minister is being kept in the dark. He is not being informed by the military authorities in Dublin of what is going on, Dylan claimed. Reiterating his point again when he asked, Are we to be told by the head of the government in this country, there being no government in Ireland, absolutely none except Sir John Maxwell, that he knows nothing of what Sir John Maxwell was doing, even though he told us before that Sir John Maxwell was in constant communication with the Cabinet and that all proceedings were submitted? At this moment, I say, you are doing everything conceivable to madden the Irish people and to spread insurrection. Perhaps not insurrection, because if you disarm the country there cannot be insurrection, but to spread disaffection and bitterness from one end of the country to the other detailing the inflammatory impact that the mass arrests across the country would have in, in the relatively peaceful counties, Dylan made the memorable claim that If Ireland were governed by men out of bedlam, you could not pursue a more insane policy. To follow this up with an equally famous line, 
I just want to say that the primary object of my motion is to put an absolute and final stop to these executions. You are letting loose a river of blood, and make no mistake about it, between two races, who, after 300 years of hatred and strife, we had nearly succeeded in bringing together. Dylan was supremely frustrated with the government's policy of delegating authority to Maxwell, only to lose track of his activities and fail to keep pace with events. As a result, Dylan said, some people within Ireland were awaiting the downfall of the Nationalist Party, and this was something to be feared. Dylan then posed a dilemma to Asquith when he asked, I want to know what kind of appearance you will make in the peace conference as the champion of small nationalities, with Ireland under a military despotism. Dylan then followed this up with a striking but also tragic anecdote. Yesterday a son of my own, a boy of 17 and a half years of age, went to the military officer in Dublin to get a pass to enable him to go to Kingstown. He happens to be a lad who asked my own permission to allow him to join the British Army on his 17th birthday, and I gave him permission to join when he was 18. He will never join it now, and there are tens of thousands like him in Ireland. No one who has studied in the college which he has studied is wanted in the army. He was asked his name in the college he had studied at, and the British officer in command grossly insulted him and refused the permit. He bore a name that was suspect, and please God, he will never trouble to join the British Army. He had to retire insulted from the place. I do not put that forward for a moment as a personal grievance, because it is nothing of the kind. I see some honourable members laughing, but my God, if your sons were subjected to such treatment in your country, because after all it is our country, even though you seem to look upon it as a kind of back garden of this country that you can trample into the dust without any consideration at all. Such an extract makes my blood boil. I can only imagine how it made John Dillon feel, as the efforts of the Irish Parliamentary Party were being swept away by a flood of British ignorance and brutality. For years Dillon and his colleagues had worked so hard to bring Ireland to a political level in line with Britain's. Now it seemed, all that was to be for naught thanks to a British unwillingness to listen to his advice and approach the situation with an open and understanding mind. Dylan added to the narrative of the Rising which emphasised the bravery of the men that fought by saying, I am proud of their courage, and if you were not so dense and stupid as some of you English people are, you would have had these men fighting for you, and they are men worth having. Such direct bluntness reflected Dylan's inherent frustrations, and he retaliated to the stubbornness of the House by expressing his sympathy at the rebels' bravery and honour, as well as the rank-and-file's misfortune to be led astray by mythical and charismatic figures. Their conduct was beyond reproach as fighting men, John Dillon concluded. I admit that they were wrong. I know they were wrong, but they fought a clean fight and fought with superb bravery and skill and no act of savagery or act against the usual customs of war that I know of has been brought home to any leader or any organised body of insurgents. I have not heard of a single act. I may be wrong, but that is my impression. I could continue listing incredible quotes from the day's discussions until the cows come home, but hopefully you get the idea. The executions up to the 11th of May had outraged and horrified the sensibilities of Irish MPs, who almost to a man recognised that if they did not stop, Britain's military governor John Maxwell would light a fire under Ireland that constitutional politics would never be able to put out. British MPs dithered in the face of such confrontation. They did what British MPs had done every time they had been confronted with such a situation. Some were too busy reading the newspaper as John Dillon spoke to actually pay him any attention while others even laughed at some of his anecdotes, as we saw, and disputed his accounts of a country that they had never even bothered to visit. Looking at this evidence alone and the prophetic claims made by John Dillon, it is very hard even for me to remain impartial. An incredible pile of arrogance and ignorance seemed to coat everything that Asquith said or that his colleagues did. Asquith was out of the loop, he was in the dark, and Despite his claims to have absolute confidence in Maxwell's discretion and judgement, he had already telegrammed Ireland's dictator on the 9th of May, requesting an end to the executions. 
as Maxwell himself recorded in a letter to his wife. The government is getting very cold feet and very afraid. They are at me every moment not to overdo the death sentences. I never intended to, but some must suffer. Though Asquith had toned down his stance from previous days and now argued only for the signatories of the proclamation of the Irish Republic to receive death penalties, the fires had already been cultivated under Ireland's populace. John Dillon had written to John Redmond, begging the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party to pressure the government into ending the executions before it was too late. But it was already too late. Songs, poems and accounts were already emerging detailing the heroism, the purity and the piety and the patriotism of the rebels. Such accounts, and the very evidence that these men had been made into martyrs for their actions, began to stir in some Irish hearts and minds the idea that they had been brave men and that their cause had been a noble and worthy one. Outrage at British conduct and the fact that the government seemed content to delegate authority to a military regime provoked intense passion and resentment, just as John Dillon predicted it would. Determined to stay the course, though, the following day on the 12th of May, the final two executions would take place, with James Connolly and Sean McDermott being shot by firing squad at Kilmainham Jail. Their deaths were both the final straw and the last nail in the coffin, of Irish tolerance for Britain's inexcusable and short-sighted policy. Within moments of both men's deaths, Dublin Castle produced a report for London detailing the increasing sympathy for the rebels and the identification of many average Irishmen with their aims and methods. The tide was turning, and unless London did something fast, this tide threatened to swallow its Irish regime whole. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 